parler développement. Hablando de desarrollo. Talking development. Welcome to Talking Development, a podcast by Concord, the European Confederation for Relief and Development NGOs. These regular podcasts deal with topical issues linked to international cooperation, focusing particularly on the role the EU can play. So good morning, everyone, or afternoon, wherever you might be. We are here with the Talking Development podcast to discuss the COVID recovery and the EU role or the role that the EU is playing either positively and negatively in terms of supporting a global COVID recovery. We will hear from three guest speakers and myself as the moderator, who I will now introduce to you. So my name is Jeroen Kwakenbos. I am the Senior Aid Policy and Development Finance Advisor, as well as Deputy Director of Oxfam International's EU office. With me today, I have Fatin Agad, who is an expert on EU-AU relations. Good morning to you and good morning to the listeners or good afternoon. Joining her will be Dushni Wirakun, who is the Executive Director of the Institute of Policy Studies in Sri Lanka. Hello and uh, good afternoon. It's uh, afternoon time in uh, Colombo, but I also wish all of you good morning in Europe. And last but not least, we have Ashley Furlong, who is a healthcare reporter for Politico. So hello, Ashley. Hello, it's lovely to be with you today. So in terms of where we are now, it depends largely on where you live. If you are in the EU, things are looking very well. For the most part, those who want a vaccine can get a vaccine. And most of the effort from states and governments is in getting those who do not want a vaccine to take a vaccine. If you are living in other areas uh, which are not of a high income status, things are looking very different. Only 1% of people in least developed countries have been vaccinated. For the most part, access to actual vaccines is the real bottleneck in terms of getting people vaccinated to deal with COVID. And we are dealing with the prospect of a drastically unequal recovery um, where rich countries face significant opportunities compared to the challenges that poor countries are facing. We could see a situation where people in rich countries are fully vaccinated, whereas vaccination drives in poor countries will take years and years in order to achieve the same level of vaccination rates. I'm going to go straight into the first question, which is for all the panelists, which is when it comes to achieving equal and meaningful partnerships, the EU is facing its first real test. In her State of the Union speech, President Ursula von der Leyen pledged to donate 200 million doses to low-income countries. This is on top of the already existing pledge to donate 250 million doses, of which only 20 million have been delivered to date. What does this say about the narrative the EU is shaping around its partnerships with poor countries and developing countries and partner countries? Please, Fatin, it would be great to hear an AU perspective on this. So I think what's important to remember at the end of the day is that action matters. It's not about pledges. I think the pledges we've been uh, hearing about them since last year, but you just mentioned the pace of delivery has been extremely slow. I think coupled also with what kind of vaccines are being shared. As you know, there is there has been a lot of misinformation and, and, and fake news around vaccines that were further compounded by the EU's 
the step, I would say, around AstraZeneca. And that happened to be one of the vaccines that was most widely shared, certainly in the case of Africa, and in those few million doses that the EU has shared. So I think at the end of the day, what countries will be watching out for is how much has the EU concretely delivered. I think pledges mean very little. No, that's very true. It's easy to talk, but it's much more difficult to actually do. And hopefully talk is matched by doing. But in this case, we're not really seeing it to that effect. So Dushni, I'd actually like to ask you on that question. In a previous conversation we had, you mentioned that the perception from outside of the EU was when the crisis first began, that the EU was doing a horrible job of managing the crises compared to countries, particularly in East and Southern Asia. What do you think about this narrative that the EU is trying to develop in terms of demonstrating that it's a good actor globally in terms of dealing with the crises? We don't see much of uh, EU engagement on the vaccination process. My understanding is that, you know, EU is perhaps more focused on Africa than on Asian uh, region. But even with that, if you simply take a step back, look at sort of the global leadership in terms of, first of all, dealing with the COVID crisis and then ensuring that vaccinations are made available equitably. We don't uh, see any sort of... um, engagement in the EU for Asian countries. China has stepped up quite significantly in providing vaccination. And with a little sort of a lag, countries like the US is also playing a much more proactive role. So in that entire sort of uh, engagement process of building relationships through vaccination, diplomacy, etc., EU has really not uh, made any sort of notable impact, at least uh, in the Asian context. That's very interesting. And it probably is part of the Africa focus that the EU currently has as its priority, where it sees the African continent as a clear strategic partner in terms of foreign objectives and and economic objectives. Ashley, you cover all of this stuff. So you know all about these pledges and you know all about the development of COVAX. So I just want to ask you from someone who follows this very closely, is this working? What's happened and what's happening And where would you say the EU, what kind of a role do you think the EU is playing right now? Is it productive? Is it constructive? Is it destructive? Well, I think we can see that it's not working as well as it was hoped. You know, these very slow deliveries um, uh, arriving in countries. And I think one of the reasons for that is that because... It was never initially planned that we would be relying on donations. You know, the, the plan was to vaccinate the world through COVAX. Um, and so when you donate doses, it's quite complicated and there's a huge amount of bureaucracy and there's new legal contracts that need to be written up. Countries themselves need to take on liability in a different way. There's a lot, there's a huge amount of admin and bureaucracy that goes with donating doses. So this was never the plan to rely on handouts, donations, and that's also why it's slowing things down. But I think we need to sort of look at, you know, how we originally conceived COVAX and, you know, that this wasn't the plan and that we've fallen into the scenario because COVAX failed to deliver on its promises. Uh, And that's not necessarily COVAX's fault. It's the member states that signed up to it. And I think that, you know, there needs to be sort of a a reckoning with what went wrong with COVAX in order for the future so that if we, in another pandemic, we're not in the same situation where countries are saying, we need to rely on donations from wealthy countries because clearly that's not working very well. That's a fantastic point and a great segue to our next question, which is, you know, pledges pledges are just, just hot air as far as we're concerned. And there is a real problem here. 
uh, in terms of actually implementing what the EU wants to do in terms of global vaccination. So how can the EU change this around? How can the EU actually achieve its stated objectives of being a good partner globally and promoting uh, equitable vaccine access throughout not just Africa, but the world, hopefully, in the end of the day? And what can it do to promote vaccine equity that it's currently not doing? One of the main issues that we know is of interest to the African Union ahead of the African AU summit is that they do want to discuss this TRIPS waiver, which is about intellectual property rights related to uh, vaccine patents. And the EU is heavily against discussing this. They do not think that it is a reasonable solution. And the more that I talk to civil servants and to MEPs who oppose the TRIPS, the more I'm hearing this argument that this TRIPS waiver is actually an intellectual property grab by India and South Africa who want to gain their hands on this knowledge in order to develop some kind of a competitive vaccine industry. Uh, Fatin, since you work very closely with the AU, is there any justification to these claims that are being made? Or what is your perception in terms of how the EU can be a better partner in tackling the COVID crisis? I think as Ashley mentioned, I think the failure of COVAX, and that indeed has to do more with the way we use COVAX, combined with a support, I would say, of this persistent artificial scarcity of vaccine is what we are trying to resolve or find a solution for. Now, when it comes to the position of African countries, and that's a common position in that respect, it was very clear that this TRIPS waiver is critical. And we're going nowhere with the discussions at the moment, primarily because of the EU's approach and delaying tactics, I would say. Now, if the EU does want to be a constructive partner, I think particularly because this is a global health crisis, this is not about one country, but it's really about fighting the pandemic in a comprehensive way beyond borders. I think the key test for the EU is how it will go about the strips waiver. Now, in addition to the arguments that you were just mentioning, the other one that we often hear is that, well, the TRIPS waiver won't solve anything because there are flexibilities within this, this TRIPS waiver. But we know very well that for some of the bilateral investment agreements, particularly those that do make specific reference to the TRIPS context, um, having such a waiver is extremely important. And so the hope initially was that there would be some conversions of positions. And even the EU is talking now of conversions of positions. The truth is that it's not there. But the hope is that there will be some type of convergence of positions because the challenge is finding a structural solution. It's not about donations, but a structural comprehensive solution. I think that's really where the challenge lies at the moment. And the lack of cooperation by the EU, frankly, sidelines it as a relevant actor if one speaks of the global public good, uh, if I can put it that way. No, that's absolutely fair enough. I think the EU talks about cooperation primarily with the African Union as being one of its main priorities, especially before the crisis. I do remember that Ursula von der Leyen and Charles Michel were doing a, a tour of Ethiopia and Africa saying, we're here to help and we're here to listen, tell us what you want. And now they have told us what they want and the answer was no. So I think that clearly spells out where the partnership sits, particularly on the issue of the TRIPS waiver. Dushni, you talk about the lack of focus on Eastern and Southern Asia. And that really brings to mind the situation that currently exists in some East Asian countries, particularly Vietnam. You will recall at the beginning of the crises, Vietnam was seen as the poster child for having done everything right. A fantastic public campaign to show how to wash your hands 
no serious lockdown initially due to very responsible behavior by citizens and government. And then here we are a year later and the situation is completely the opposite. The country is being ravaged by the Delta variant. It has requested on several occasions to play a role as an mRNA hub for new technologies, but has not had any technology transfer come into place. So I'm interested to hear what do you think that the EU could do to help a country like Vietnam uh, in order to meet the current challenges? Is, is it about more donations? Is it about enhancing manufacturing capacity? Is it about access? What's really stopping the EU from playing a positive role here? So Vietnam, if you look at their initial numbers, they hardly had any cases and any deaths. Again, I see that the U.S., for instance, is coming in in a big way and making vaccinations available to these countries. But we don't hear so much about engagement from the EU, but capacity to produce some of these pharmaceuticals, I think it's much better in most Asian countries. And there have been requests to allow that to happen on a bilateral basis basis that's happening. For instance, some of the vaccinations that have been produced in some of the Asian countries, they've promised to open production bases in some of the neighboring economies. So I think there's a lot of catching up for the EU to do, quite frankly, because um, it's, it's pretty marginal to all these uh, debates and discussions that's going on. And if it is seen as the main sort of player in holding back trips, waivers, etc., that makes it even that much worse, to be quite frank. So I think the EU has to up its game and make a real commitment. I mean, we've all heard about the 200 million pledge that they made in September, but even the COVAX pledges have really not materialized. So uh, we want to see um, real action that delivers solutions at this point. No, thanks very much. And I, I do find it very interesting that the EU is just not seen as present within South Asia and East Asia, which given its global ambitions is quite troubling as well as interesting. I mean, it's a very different story that we're hearing within Europe in terms of the role that the EU is playing uh, globally within COVAX and within getting vaccines into people's arms. Ashley, now it's your turn. So I have many questions for you because you have been talking to European member states left and right. And when it comes to the TRIPS waiver, I'm always curious as to who the Commission claims to be speaking for, because what we've seen is there is no European consensus on IP. We had Pedro Sanchez at the UN General Assembly the other day saying that IP should not be a barrier to the COVID recovery. We've had uh, promises from Emmanuel Macron to President Ramaphosa from South Africa on ensuring that there will be access to this IP. Um, yet the EU position does not represent the will of its member states. It seems to represent the will of only a few of its member states. And I'm curious if you have an opinion as to why this could be the case. And then in terms of your coverage of COVAX, the EU is making all kinds of promises on supporting manufacturing in Africa of vaccines in the future. It wants to support the 60% target that the AU has. But we've seen that the current vaccine pooling of patents is a complete failure. CTAP has not emerged in any way or form to be a good way to share patents. Why, why do you think that this is the case? So I think um, on your first question about, you know, member states uh, not sort of having a coherent position, that's very clear that we've seen a variety of views on intellectual property rights. And some, uh, for example, some health ministers seeming to express support for a waiver and I think that gave a lot of hope to people um, supporting the waiver because they thought, you know, maybe there's going to be an EU shift. And that was earlier this year. 
that hasn't happened at all. Very sceptical people will say it's the influence of big pharma on large EU countries like Germany and you know that sort of pushing forward uh, this opposition towards the waiver. It's hard to know. It's hard to get a member state on the record saying we actually do support the waiver. There is a semi-united stance, I would say, uh, from EU countries in you know opposing the waiver. But what I do think is interesting and links to the manufacturing capacity in Africa is that one of the arguments against the waiver is that people will say, well, you don't need implementing a waiver wouldn't actually make you able to produce a vaccine tomorrow, which is very true. If you want to do it quickly, you need the pharmaceutical companies on board. It'll take much longer. It is possible to do it without those companies if you have the waiver, but it would take longer. And we've seen in South Africa, there's the WHO's mRNA hub, and that hub, no pharmaceutical company has yet sort of signed on to work with it, to share its know-how. So we've seen Emmanuel Macron, as you say, support this hub, but nothing more has really come of that. And this hub's still trying to sort of um, pull together that know-how and that technical expertise to be able to produce a vaccine without actually working directly with Moderna or Pfizer but it's proving, I think, quite difficult. We've seen various sort of efforts around Africa in Senegal and Rwanda to increase manufacturing capacity, but timelines for exactly when this will happen and what sort of vaccines this will be and whether this is going to be sort of the very last stage of the vaccine manufacturing process or whether it will include the sort of whole life cycle so that there's sort of real knowledge sharing happening and that African countries can actually produce vaccines and not just, you know, package them into containers is the big question. And I think the next couple of months, next year, is going to be interesting to see if the EU's sort of promise to increase manufacturing capacity in Africa actually comes to be and whether we see big initiatives actually get off the ground, not just be announced on paper. Once again, we get to the problem that talk is cheap and that actual implementation tends to be a little bit more challenging. And it seems like there's a lot of talk these days. And that is really unfortunate because it does seem quite frustrating that you would have a leader of the EU, if you will, on one hand say that he totally supports our partners in Africa, and then on the other hand, completely undermining this support at the WTO or at the WHO or in other areas. And that kind of gets us to the last question that we have here. You mentioned that it's important for countries to be able to help themselves to get themselves out of these crises. The manufacturing capacity is an important issue for Africa so that they can determine how best to solve the problem themselves as opposed to relying on charitable contributions. So the EU is constantly saying that it's now shifting from a development cooperation or charitable approach to its partners to partnership. What does that mean? How does that look? What is the thing that the EU should be doing in order to help its partners deal with this crisis the most effectively? We'll just go around and, and it'd be great if you just had at least you know one major idea that you could identify as a bottleneck for achieving to this and where the EU could actually be helpful in challenging this bottleneck. So Fatten, can we begin with you? It's an interesting question that you ask. And I wonder whether, again, beyond the talk, whether the EU leadership has sat down and actually articulated a bit more clearly what it means by we want a partnership with Africa. In the sense that I think this current crisis could, in fact, have been an opportunity to strategically create some type of manufacturing space between Europe and Africa. But that's a missed opportunity, I think. At the end of the day, the EU went back to the EU first approach, if I can put it that way. 
And I think in the process, losing out to other partners. I think if you look at the way China has approached this issue, by the way, I think the Chinese vaccines, there are at least agreements to manufacture them in some African countries. Um, There's at least one country that started a couple of weeks ago concretely producing them. If you look at the situation also, the position of the US with respect to the trips, that has been refreshing, although, I mean, we still need to see how how they take it forward. And that hasn't been the case for the EU. To the contrary, it acted like a non-partner almost. So I think this would not have happened had the EU been truly clear about how it wants to concretize this idea of partnership. And we don't see it only in this area of vaccine, but we see it in other issues from climate change to the digital agenda. So I think to me, and I think for any observer, a close observer of the EU, Europe-Africa relations, I think it's a more systemic issue rather than an issue related to this specific theme that we're discussing today. That's very interesting. You have to be able to say what you want in order to actually achieve it, right, I guess is kind of the point that the EU needs to make there. And have the courage to take some bold decisions to make that shift. And that's not yet there. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, Dushni, so the EU is apparently not present in Asia. Should the EU be present in Asia? Is there an opportunity that is being missed there, as Fatten put it, in terms of enhancing EU relationships with Eastern and Southern Asia? Or should the EU just get out of its own way and leave Asia to itself in order to deal with the crises, which, as you mentioned, it had initially been doing quite well? Well, I think that uh, very much depends on what EU considers to be its strategic interests in the long term. Purely on humanitarian grounds, I fully understand why EU would focus on Africa first, because they are struggling much more so than the Asian countries. But I think it would not be a mistake for the EU to not recognize that the US, China, all these countries are gaining ground as a result. It was mentioned that uh, donations are not easy. There are processes to be got through. But for most Asian countries, when we got stuck with not being able to access vaccinations uh, from the Serum Institute, it was China that stepped in and in some way also Russia. And you can see even at a latter stage, the U.S. is trying to catch up what it lost in the Asian region. And I think that uh, taking a big picture view that um, EU has to keep in mind that its trade, investment, all of these links are pretty strong in the Asian region. And if it doesn't uh, keep on track, other countries will just step in where the EU is absent. That's also very interesting. Can the EU actually live up to its geopolitical ambitions, I think, is the question that we're constantly asking ourselves, those within Europe. Or is it just a fugazi, a a smokescreen that's supposed to hide the fact that the EU is still, to a degree, not really a united voice globally? And then, Ashley, you are a journalist, so you sit in the middle of this. If you had the bully pulpit, if you could tell the EU what to do... Uh, in order to make things better. Uh, what what would you do? What would you say? What do you think is missing? What What needs to be done? Well, I think during the pandemic, specifically in the relationship between African Union and African countries and the EU, you know, trust really disappeared in the sense that those promises weren't met. And some experts would say that there wasn't much trust to begin with. But I think that definitely where we are now, there's a lack of trust in the EU. And there's a lack of sort of uh, belief that the EU can actually provide that sort of help when Africa really needs it. So you've definitely got a lot of work to do. And I think 
I would say one of the main things to do would be to actually fulfill its vaccine and uh, sharing promises as soon as possible, really, because time is of the essence. And secondly, to fulfill this promise of increasing manufacturing capacity on the continent. If the EU can help convince manufacturers to work with these new sort of hubs that are being set up, if the EU can, if the funding that it's promised comes through to worthwhile initiatives that actually produce vaccines, maybe not COVID vaccines, but maybe future mRNA vaccines or the like, within a decent time frame, that may go some way to restoring that trust. So can the EU put its money where its mouth is, I think, is the question that many of us are wondering. And to date, the answer does not lead to particularly much optimism in terms of its ability to do so. But there is still a chance that the EU could start playing a significantly more positive role in the near future. We have a very short window with which to deal with the current COVID crisis before new variants emerge. So I hope that everyone enjoyed this conversation. We, we covered a lot of ground between the different speakers. What has become very clear is that vaccine inequality is still a major issue that needs to be tackled. And it will eventually lead to greater inequality within and between countries, if not dealt with soon and with appropriate vigor. Concord is the voice of more than 2,600 NGOs across Europe. To keep the conversation going, you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. You can obviously find this podcast on your favourite listening platforms and on our website, concordeurope.org. Please don't hesitate to get in touch with us and to share your ideas. We'd really like to hear from you. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.